Hi, it's Ian Brody of ianbrody.com here. Welcome to the podcast. With me on the line is Colleen Stanley, who's the president and founder of Sales Leadership. Welcome to the podcast, Colleen. Yeah, thanks for having me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, Colleen is the author of uh, a recently published book, Emotional Intelligence for Sales Success. Now, some of you listening may immediately think, oh, well, I'm not a salesperson. That book can't possibly be for me. But, of course, all of us, whether we're a consultant, an accountant, a lawyer, an architect, we're all, of course, involved in sales meetings and sales calls. It's all vital to our business success that we're able to successfully bring clients online and that's really what the book is all about it's not just for salespeople and especially the area of emotional intelligence is one that's particularly important and, and often particularly tricky for um, service professionals so that's why I've called Colleen under the call today Colleen I'm going to jump straight in with a question um, when does your own emotional intelligence actually play a role during a sales meeting a sales call well, Ian, often what we talk about in the book and also in training is that some uh, professionals actually lose the call within the first five minutes of meeting a potential customer. For example, if you don't know how to read and relate to that customer, get down to business quickly, take time to build bond and rapport, you might be lacking the emotional intelligence skill of empathy, which is all about really realizing what somebody is thinking and feeling during the meeting. Now, the second area that we talk about a lot with our clients is the fact that, let's say you're meeting with a potential uh, client, and this client happens to be kind of a tough prospect, as we call it. Mm. Well, if you're not able to manage your emotions, you actually go into what we call a physiological reaction called fight or flight. Mm. And even though as an architect, lawyer, accountant, you're very, very smart on the IQ, instead of IQ running the meeting, good communication and influence skills, emotions start taking over that meeting and you literally start having this physiological reaction, blood leaves the brain, goes to the external organs, adrenaline starts shooting off and as we say you're often left with the function of a monkey and and that's when you walk out of those meetings and you say to yourself why did I say that or why didn't I say this and it's because emotions start running the meeting rather than good influence and communication skills. You know, I have to admit, I have been in those situations myself where somehow there's just maybe some trigger words or if the client, if it feels like the client doesn't trust you or is questioning your expertise, all of a sudden it almost emotionally becomes a battle to defeat them rather than to, rather than to win them over as a client. And you do, you walk out thinking, why on earth did I say that? Yes, and that, that would be called a fight response. Right. Now, sometimes on the other hand, what can happen is that you have a potential client and they're very gracious and they're saying, we need this, we need this. And instead of running a disciplined approach, a questioning approach, you, you get really excited. So another emotion takes over and all those good questioning skills, problem solving skills go out the window and you present solutions too often mm. simply because the excitement emotion took over. So yeah. you, what we call sloppy during the call. You call that what, sorry? I call it sloppy sales. Ah, yes. No. Because you know the questions to ask. Yeah. You know problem-solving skills, especially professionals in accounting, engineering, and uh, architects. They, they are good problem-solvers, naturally, but those skills 
may exit the meeting because they got excited and presented solutions too soon, and the solution may not be the one the prospect needs or is looking for. Yeah, indeed, and, it, and it, I think it's quite common that since a, a professional is not a full-time dedicated salesperson, since they're not in sales meetings all the time, then if a client does sound as if they're interested, they almost haven't got the experience to realize it's not the right time yet. And they get really excited because it feels like they're going to be able to, you know, oh, well, this one's in the bag, brilliant. And they jump yeah. to talking about the, the details of their solution, which, is, of course, is, is comfortable home territory. <laughs> yeah, Correct. very, very, very interesting challenge. Okay, so if these problems that sometimes happen in a, in a sales meeting or call are, are, are really driven by emotional intelligence rather than your your, your, your IQ, can you actually improve your in, in, emotional intelligence? Can you get better at this stuff? Yes, that's a good news with emotional intelligence. Obviously, it takes focus, commitment. And the one thing we talk about a lot with our clients is something called self-awareness and improving that. Now, here's the good and bad news. Yes, EQ, emotional intelligence, can improve. But generally, the only way it improves is with what we call downtime. And most of us don't get downtime. We live in a high-tech world. We are connected. We've got smartphones. We've got iPads. We've got iPods. And unfortunately, we are so busy that often we just don't get time to sit and reflect and analyze how we showed up that day. So, for example, if you ran an ineffective meeting with a potential client, what was the trigger? What was the worst they said that got you to go into fight mode or happy mode, um, presenting too soon mode? Uh, what caused you not to show up the right way? So it is only in the dial time that you can really gain purpose and, purpose and clarity of thinking that helps you show up better on the next appointment. Okay, so by, by going through this reflective process and thinking things through, we can almost... I don't know if you'd quite call it rewiring your brain, but you certainly make yourself more aware so you, you pick up on it next time. But as you said, the challenge is these days, no sooner are we out of a client meeting, we're checking email on our iPhone or something like that. And we, I guess by the time you do get some quiet time, you know, a day later, it's too late. The, you know, your memory of that event is, is so, so distant, the, the, the learning right. process doesn't work. So, right, and if you, if you know you have a difficult uh, prospect or client meeting coming up that day, my suggestion is to get in the habit, and maybe maybe you're a morning person, evening person, choose a time that works for you. I happen to be a morning person. So I purposely am awake 15 minutes to 30 minutes, and I spend it during quiet time. How do I want to show up today? Uh, where might I be challenged? Where might my emotions start running amok? rather than my good, as they say, communication, influence, and selling skills. Mm. So I am very intentional about how I want to show up each day. So you'll do the reflection after uh, a meeting's gone well or hasn't gone well, and then you'll feed that into your future meetings by doing this, this preparation beforehand. Correct. And uh, to your point, Ian, you actually can change the way you think. It's something called neuroplasticity. And, you know, not to get into too much of the neuroscience, but, you know, You've often heard the, the saying, what you think you become, where well, there's actually science behind that. Mm. Because what you repeatedly think, you actually form a new neural pathway. So during some of the more difficult conversations, when you start to default, you will not default to old behavior, you will default to new behavior because you can create and develop these new neural pathways and responses uh, to uh, verbal communication, somebody's attitude, etc. So uh, mastery is within your control. 
Right, so even though it may be a challenge and you may have to consciously do this initially, eventually you'll build these new neural pathways and it'll it'll become more more of a habit for you. That's the, that's the first path you'll go down rather than the rather than the fight or the or, or, or whatever it is you're getting you're wrongly getting into. Correct, and you know an overused analogy is athletics. But if you study athletics, they have neuroplasticity down to a science. They practice more than they play because they know during the game when you've got a very big competitor, you know, running at you or coming off football season here in the States or on the basketball court or hockey, whatever your sport of choice is, under those stressful situations, you can still execute because the default is to the right neural pathway, not the wrong one. So I guess an interesting question, if we take that sporting analogy further, where as you just said, they practice more than they play, would that be a more a kind of strategic recommendation for organizations or individuals that because typically what we do is we run from you know event to event and we and, and often I, I know I've thought this myself I heard, I've heard others express the thought well we just don't have the time to do practice like that for a for a sales meeting because you know that means one sales meeting left we don't less we don't have enough time for it but I guess it feels a bit like what we should be doing is having less of less you know, sales meetings or less other wasted time and have more effective ones, have a smaller number of more effective ones because we've prepared and uh, practiced for them and we, we get better results from them. Well, you make a very good point. Um, often we confuse busy with being productive. And so we think, okay, we're running X amount of appointments. Well, if you really start taking a look and analyzing your business, you know, how many of those converted to profitable sales, uh, sales at all, and next meeting? So often, if you can step back, get that downtime and say, where should I be showing up and, and should I even be at this appointment? Is this a qualified opportunity? So it's important that people don't confuse busyness with productiveness. You're absolutely yeah. spot on. And another quick question related to that learning process. Do you recommend that people take physical notes? They actually, you know, if they're doing the review, they write down and then they can use those notes when they're, when they're preparing for the call? Yes, absolutely. We have what we call pre-brief and debrief forms. So a pre-brief might be this. What if the potential client says this? What if the potential client says that? And so instead of being surprised because, you know, I have a phrase, it, it's pretty predictable behavior. And what I mean by that is if we get together with the group and we say, okay, write down all the objections you hear from a potential client, our clients can fill a whiteboard. So the behavior is predictable. So what's the reason we don't have the appropriate response or redirect ready? And it's because we're not taking the time to practice, get those new neural pathways in place, and, and be prepared for the meeting. And in today's you know age of information, your buyer is, you know, obviously we all know this more equipped with information, feature advantage, benefits, selling is dead. So you need to go in more prepared to ask the critical questions, the thought-provoking questions, so this person says, I need you on my team. Mm. You will add value to my organization. Mm. And it sounds like that preparation is partly it's the kind of the logical around the smart questions uh, um, that's going to drive insight for the client, but partially it's also about preparing yourself emotionally for those questions so you don't immediately react with fear or panic or fight or flight, those sort of reactions. Correct, correct, because in fairness, if you've got a, a product or service that people don't know how to buy, what the potential client defaults to is what's your price or what makes you different. And it's not that they're actually trying to trip you up. They don't know the right questions to ask, yeah. but they're thinking, well, I can go to those two. Now, those two questions can tend to put professionals on the spot. 
and on the defense. So if that's something to say, just start knowing who your prospects are and they're not trying to set you up. Sometimes they don't know how to buy your product or service. Yeah, so part, part of that meeting process should be is you helping them understand how to buy that and you've got to prepare for that. You've got to prepare. Okay, going to cut over to another question. One, one a lot of people have challenges with, which is getting the right, you know, getting to meet with the right decision makers. Um, how does emotional intelligence help there? Great question. You know, often when you take a look at traditional uh, sales training, call it rainmaker training, whatever the words are out there, there's different words for for professional services firms. But here's what often happens: we focus on the hard skills which are important in. However, what I have found in my years of doing this, and I've been working in this business for 14 years, I find there's two soft skills, emotional intelligence skills, that often impact getting meetings with the decision maker. The first is self-regard, and that simply is self-confidence. And more than once, when I really start drilling down, what's the reason you're not meeting with the, quote, economic buyer, the C-suite buyer? And finally, you will find out the person is really intimidated or nervous about meeting at that level of the organization. So it's not about a hard selling skill anymore. It's more about I'm not confident having that conversation. And often what plays into that is the self-talk, what are you saying to yourself? And some of it might be just what you just mentioned. Maybe the person isn't prepared because preparation takes another emotional intelligence skill called delayed gratification. And delayed gratification is the willingness to put in the work before you get the reward. So there may be more strategy, developing a customized value proposition, developing customized questions that are pertinent just to that position. So those are a couple. One more that I've seen is that most people know that when they're calling on major account bills, there's more than one buying influence. And they have trouble stating what they need nicely. That's called assertiveness. So I may be meeting with what we call the user buyer, maybe somebody that's going to execute the product or service. Right? But the economic buyer, the CFO, maybe it's the president, uh, could be uh, the COO, that's the one that's going to be writing the check. You know that because you've lost a number of opportunities because you didn't have that meeting to find out what that person's decision criteria was. So it's not a hard skill. You know it. You're lacking the soft skill, the assertiveness to say, hey, in order for me to make a good recommendation here, I will need, need to meet with this title, this title, and this title. How do we make that happen? Yeah, there's often a, I think, yeah, that lack of assertiveness leads, I think, to you not wanting to hurt the feelings or upset or, or rock the boat with the user buyer you're meeting with. And as a result, of course, you, may, you miss out on the, on the whole key decision-making criteria. Right. And, you know, often what we talk about is set the expectations early. So if you know you're meeting with a buying influence, but it's not the last buying influence, set that expectation early and say, hey, Ian, I know let's you and I have a meeting today, and let's see if you and I find that these are even a good match here for what I can bring to the conversation. And if so, generally how we get the best results is that we continue to meet with other people in the organization. So you set the expectation early. So it's not a surprise when you when you come back to that point at the end. I guess sometimes that 
that expectation is all about making it easier for you as well. The, 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 you know, the chances are that person you were meeting with wouldn't have minded anyway had you asked, but you've by setting the expectation, it just becomes more of an open door for you to ask. You feel less uncomfortable about it. You're almost, you're almost uh, structuring in your own assertiveness into the call. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And we all know that, uh, again, in today's environment, there's so much information to gather in order to put together an effective recommendation. It's, it's fairly common sense. Let me, meet, let me meet with a few folks to make the best proper recommendation. So next one, so um, I guess related to meeting folks, etc. After the meeting, one problem, in fact, I get a lot of emails about it, people who are stuck in chase mode, how do I follow up? I had a meeting with someone. I sent them a proposal. They haven't got back to me. You know what? What, what am I going to do? How do you how do you get out of that mode where you're constantly chasing clients? And of course, that never sets the right impression. Well, that's that's a common problem regardless of the industry. So there's a couple things here. You may have some hard hard selling and influence skills needed missing. But here's one that I see missing often: something called reality testing. And reality testing is that ability to know what's really going on in this meeting. So the first thing we need to be aware of is, is the second meeting in order? So Ian, you know the popular terms in sales is find the pain, find the uh, a prospect's problem. And if indeed during that meeting, you didn't hear enough of a reason for that person to change vendors, bring on your product or service, you need to call the elephant in the room mm. and engage something called truth-telling, and that's also a combination of assertiveness. So I'm not throwing the deal away because you didn't have the deal anyway. That's this right. person that's right. either have a problem, or maybe they do, but it's just not big enough to fix yeah. if, you, you know, if you run the proper diagnostic. So I often say apply your reality testing skills and then apply your assertiveness and truth-telling skills. And it might sound like, Ian, you know, I've had a good meeting today. I appreciate how open you've been. I have to be upfront with you. I'm not sure if I'm hearing enough reason for you to switch or bring on this service. What am I missing? And truth begets truth. And that is one quick way of getting out of a chase mode is to simply uh, lose desperation and breath and only deal with your highest value opportunities. Mm. Because the truth is, if you're, if you're chasing in many of those circumstances, as you said, the truth is you never had it. You never had it in the first place. It's just they were too polite to just say, no, actually, we're not interested right now. So you go through that yeah. whole process of, oh, well, well, why don't you write me a proposal? Um, and, of course, they're not really interested. They just want you out of the room to move on to other things. But I, I guess a bit like you, they don't have the emotional intelligence themselves to, to put the truth out on the table, too. And, or, Obviously, rare, rare circumstances they do, but but the people at the other side of the table are probably just as emotionally challenged as we are, so we yes. end up playing these games with each other. Well, and in, in, in fairness to our potential clients, they know that people have been taught to overcome the objection, which is just this archaic selling technique. Mm. So what happens, Ian, is that they may want to tell you the truth, but the last time they shared that with a professional, the professional kept overcoming the objection. Yeah. And so they don't want to get into that wrestling match again. So rather than be assertive and tell the truth with you, they do the easier thing that says, this sounds interesting, put together something, and because we lack assertiveness and reality testing, we go along to get along. 
That is a really insightful point, Colleen. It, it, it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. The, that's what so many people have been trained to do. The minute the client pops up an objection, to hammer it back down and convince them that they're wrong and you're really the right person. So if they know that's going to be the case, why would they? raise an objection. It's almost if you've got objections, don't say them. It'll give the it'll give the, <laughs> give the dreaded salesperson or or, or or whoever it is the other side of the table a, an opportunity to tell you why you're wrong and that's not what you want. So uh yes, yeah, so it's so it's up to you to almost yes. raise the objection for them. If you're if you're feeling that it's just not you know, you've applied your reality check, it just doesn't feel like this is really on, raise that objection for them in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things we teach is you know the objections or potential problems, and if you're applying your empathy skills, you can sense if somebody's uncomfortable mm. or if there's something they're not saying. And But as we said, part of it, they're a little bit afraid to share the cards because of the sumo wrestling event that can occur on overcoming these objections. I know I was taught when I got started in sales 20-some years ago, overcome the objection seven times. Is that obnoxious or what? <laughs> Never get out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> they did, and they did not. <laughs> oh, blimey. Right. So, we've covered chase mode. We've covered meeting decision makers. What about being liked? Uh, you know, that's one of the phrases you hear so often is, you know, if someone buys from you, especially in the, in the professions in services, they've got to know, like, and trust you. And that's, you know, liking is, a, is, is often a, it's often a challenge for many professionals, I think, because... Um, and you, you see this in, in survey after survey. You know, if you're an accountant or a lawyer, you're often very good at the technical part of your job. You're often perhaps not so good at building more of that human relationship with your client. So, what's your, what's your your view there in terms of using emotional intelligence? Well, probably one of the key skills is empathy. And empathy is the definition is that ability to step in somebody else's shoes and know what they're thinking or feeling. So it's a lot about reading and relating. Now, generally, here's what's interesting, Ian, is somebody comes in, and we obviously run assessments to test people based on an emotional intelligence. If they score low in empathy, the biggest coaching we can give them is to pay attention. And I will go back to our high-tech world, and by the way, I like technology, but what we're finding in our high-tech world is sometimes because people are always so connected, they've lost their ability to focus and be present. Because when you're present, you can pick up the nonverbal clues, a shift in the tonality, body language, and in the eyes. If you're paying attention, you can start reading what personality style you're in front of and adapt or change. Just like when we started today, uh, we started laughing because both of us got down to business, mm. and then we started, okay, we got the business part done. Now, how was your weekend? So, and neither one of us were offended there because you were reading me, I was reading you. All right, that's good emotional intelligence. And you know, I suppose it might it might also that ability to pay attention might also help people with their personal relationships as well. Just as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, the number of times, and I've done it myself, um, but you know, you're having dinner with someone. And, you know, God forbid, someone in your family, someone close to you, and you've got your Blackberry out at the table and you're looking at that, what kind of impression does that send to them? And what I hadn't thought of before is, of course, you'll, that's also training you not to pay attention to people yeah. when you're actually engaged with them. You, you'll look, or in reverse, you know, all those social situations you're in, you, you're picking up those skills all the time. It's reinforcing the skills of actually listening to people, paying attention, empathizing, and the more mm -hmm. you're always on, 
the the less the less those skills are sinking into you. Well, you it's quite scary actually to think that um, not only are we offending our wives if we use an iPhone at the dinner table, but we're losing our ability to build relationships with people. Yeah, because what you do repeatedly becomes a habit. And so I contend that if this is how you're operating the rest of your life, and all of a sudden you're supposed to be in this nice consultative meeting and being this trusted advisor, well, if you have not been paying attention for an hour at a time, and this is the first time you have to focus for an hour on someone else, you might have a chance of flunking that engagement. Yeah, your mind's going to wander. Your your fingers are going to start itching, wanting to look at your emails and things. It's uh, yeah. Yes. yes, you know, you know. And here's a good picture for everyone to paint. You know, back in the day before smartphones, can you imagine if everyone was sitting around the dinner table with a newspaper in front of their face? Mm. Exactly what you're doing with a smartphone, except it's smaller. Mm. Now we sit there and go, "Well, that would be ridiculous." Everybody's sitting at dinner with the newspaper in front of their face. That's what we've evolved into as a society. Go out to a restaurant. How many times do you see families? <laughs> they have no idea why they go out to eat because no <laughs> they're not together. Stuff. They're all they're all texting everybody else around them. Yeah, it's yes. in fact yes. I saw I saw a study they did recently. Um, uh, I think a psychology department somewhere where even the mere presence. If you have your phone or your BlackBerry, even if, if it's on the table and visible, as compared to a notebook, um, it actually impacts the perception people have of you, and they feel as if you're much less warm, much less friendly than someone who had a notebook on the table. And this, this doesn't mean you ever touched it or went near it or even looked at it, but the very fact it's there almost sets the other person on edge. Because yes. they know you're, they know you're thinking about the phone. <laughs> they know you're thinking about all your emails and you're not paying attention to them. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, emotional intelligence is a lot about common sense, and that's common sense. If I've got a competing tool here, there is this, sub, I'm going to say, what, I'm not sure if the right word is subliminal message I'm giving you that something else is competing for my attention. Yeah. Now, of course, most of us have our calendars on that, etc. but leave it in your briefcase. It yeah. doesn't need to be indicated. Yeah, it's interesting actually. Um, I get that if ever I'm doing a talk somewhere or I'm sitting in an audience listening to a talk, and uh, if someone is taking notes on a, on a pad of paper, then I think, oh, they're paying attention. If someone is taking notes on an iPad, my immediate gut feeling is they're not paying attention. And even if they're just using the iPad for paying notes, because we know they're taking notes, because we know it's also used to check emails, etc. There's oh, just an association yeah. with it that we automatically think you're not paying attention to me. Correct. So we, we, we need to be aware, and that's, mm. again, self-awareness, other awareness. Yeah. So what could the other person possibly be perceiving about my actions or inaction? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one, one final question for you, Colleen. The, uh, something you said right at the start about sometimes, um, for example, we know we should be asking great questions. Um, but we just not we just don't ask them in a sales call. We you know as you say we we often jump straight to the uh, jump straight to the solution. We're, you know why why aren't we doing all this this question? Because we've known for for decades now that good questioning is the is the core of of, of good selling. But yeah. it, when you actually so if people if you ask people in advance they tell you oh yeah I ask lots of questions. If you actually watch them and observe them in a sales meeting as I'm sure you've done many times you find they're not. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And, you know, and I love reading sales books, so I continually try to update my quote hard selling sales. But here's what you find emotional intelligence can bridge the knowing and doing gap. Just like you said, Ian, we know what we're supposed to do, but under certain situations, we default to non productive behavior. So often, what I find 
is a salesperson will hear a trigger, and a trigger is often in the sales world called a buying signal. And the prospect <laughs> might say, we're having a problem with this, or we need to do this. Buying signal, buying signal. Now emotions start taking over, and they lack impulse control. And impulse control means I'm going to leap before I look. Mm. All right. So instead of asking the seven to good, ten good problem-solving critical thinking skills, they might ask two, and then impulse control, my desire to present solutions, takes over. So often, that's the, that's the emotional intelligence skill I find lacking, that it, it doesn't allow you to execute those good uh, questioning skills. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think my experience is with professionals especially, because part of the reason the client's hiring them is, because, is for their expertise. There's a there's an inbuilt um, desire to prove you're an expert to the client, so you know yes. so that um, that impulse control is often on a hair trigger I think with many professionals because they because they think they're selling they think they're doing something good by demonstrating their expertise by jumping into telling mode, but as as you said it's it's the wrong thing to do and you've got to control that impulse. Well, and if you think about professionals, lawyers, architects, engineers, accountants, they have good problem-solving skills. Mm. And now what I would advise everyone in those professions, tap into those natural skills. When a buying signal shows up, ignore it, because the other thing to think about is the presenting problem is generally not the problem. So in our business, we may say, we may hear something like, uh, my team isn't prospecting. Well, if we grab that trigger and say, well, let me tell you how we improve prospecting, right? And instead, Instead, we gently don't believe our prospects because we know the presenting problem may not be the real problem. So we start digging into it, and actually, the team is prospecting. They're working very hard. They're not very skillful. So it's not that they're not prospecting. They don't have the skill training. Mm. Or you will find sometimes a company gave them skill training, and they're still not prospecting. You've got the wrong people on the quote sales button. You might have hiring and selection problem, not a prospecting problem. Yeah. So I think it's important to make sure that no matter what the prospect says there, don't believe them nicely and keep diving in to find what's the real issue here. Mm. And of course, what's the impact of that issue? Because otherwise you run across that perennial problem of, you know, the, the client's got a problem, but they just don't see it as being big enough to justify oh. moving ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and I, I believe it was Xerox and Rackham's research mm-hmm. years ago that showed impact questions, what is this costing you financially, strategically, personally, raised close ratios 50%. Yeah. So logically, we know that if you've gone through any form of sales training, yeah. and yet impulse control can take over and you never get to, as you said, those the impact questions. Mm. That's, again, very insightful. It's the uh, It does help explain that kind of gap between what we all know and uh, in some ways, why, why sales training is often a little bit ineffective, probably because it's teaching things people already know. It's just they're not doing them because of the emotional intelligence issues that are, you know, the lack of impulse control, the, the, the jump to fight or flight, etc., that, that, are, that are hampering them from doing what they know to be true. So teaching them that they should be asking impact questions for, for experienced professionals, anyone who's been on any kind of sales training, isn't going to help them because they already know that. Teaching them how to control themselves better so that they so they can ask the questions they know they should be asking is is re, really could be the answer. Yes, it's a combination of soft skills and hard skills. Mm. 
Very, very good. Hey, Colleen, that has been so, so insightful. Thank you so much for that. Um, as I said, the uh, Emotional Intelligence for Sales Success book is out right now. Um, if people want to find out more about the book and more about, of course, what you guys at Sales Leadership do, um, where should they go? They can go to our website, which is salesleadershipdevelopment.com. Excellent. And there's stuff on there, regardless of whether you're a professional salesperson or not, there's material on there that's really, really going to help improve your selling, business development, whatever you want to call it, your success at bringing on new clients. Yes, we've got uh, articles that are archived. We've got a uh, free quiz, What's Your Sales EQ? There's videos to observe. So, yes, we invite people to tap into our resources and also they can download a chapter of the book there to see if that might be something that would help them in their professional career. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Colleen. Be much appreciated and hope to speak to you again soon. Cheers. And thank you. Cheers back. Bye-bye.